Let's just pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, right now we pray that this room will become consumed with your presence. That you would begin to change the culture in this room to the very culture of heaven. God, we are here and we're in this moment and we open up our hearts and our souls. We want to hear from you today. We want to grow in our faith in you today. And so, Lord, we ask that right now you would minister to us. Lord, we all have come with things that we need to hear that are words for us, assurances going forward, ministry that we need. And Lord, we put this moment in your hands like the boy with the loaves and the fishes. And we ask that you would use it to accomplish so much more than we could ever ask or imagine. May you speak what we need to hear. May you touch the aspects of our lives that need to be touched. May you minister in profound ways. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. So come and have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, we turn back into our Confident series, where we are journeying through the book of Luke together. We started in Luke chapter 3, because we were leaving a couple of chapters for Christmas. We started in Luke chapter 3 last September. We finished the chapter in December, sorry. And... uh, We took a break from that. We're coming back to that today and arriving at Luke chapter four. And obviously one of the great things about journeying through a passage of scripture or journeying through a book of scripture is that there's no rush. And we're able to take it apart and put it back together again and look at what it is that God is saying. But also very often then there are moments in which we approach a passage and we kind of present the context or open up the context in the big picture and then return to it to find life application. And that's pretty much what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 4 today. We're going to kind of look at the big picture, the big theme and context, and then hopefully, God willing, return to it next week to begin to draw out some more application points. Does that sound okay? I'm so glad. I don't know what they've done if you'd said no. So if you have your Bible, let's go to Luke chapter 4. We're going to read verse 1 through to verse 13. Since Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. These verses are special verses and they're special for a number of reasons, actually three reasons. One, they are unique. They are unique in their source. Two, they are a bridge. They build a bridge between the introduction 
of Jesus to the life of Jesus. But they also build a bridge between the story of Scripture and the story of the Savior. But thirdly, they are unique because they present to us, or they are special because they present to us Jesus' modus operandi. They show his mission and his message. They give us a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And our whole understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus is based upon the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these Gospels are written as eyewitness accounts. They are written and they tell the story from the, of Jesus from the perspective of one looking on. And if you remember, Luke opens up his whole Gospel account with a summary. Let me remind you of it. It says, many, thing, many have undertaken to drop an account of these things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself has carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. The Gospels write from the perspective of those looking on. Luke tells us he presents almost his summary of intent, the purpose for which he has written. He writes as one that has carefully looked into, carefully researched everything from the beginning, including looking into and researching the accounts of the eyewitnesses. And he brings it all together and he pieces it all together in one overall narrative so that we can be confident to know without the shadow of any doubt that we know that we know that we know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now the verses that we steer into today are verses that are distinct from all other verses that are recorded in the gospel. They are distinct because of what they describe to us. They describe to us the moment that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now the account that follows of the happenings in the wilderness season is profound. And it's almost sacred because this wilderness season was one which was witnessed by nobody other than Jesus. So these words are not written describing the perspective of an onlooker. They're not written from the perspective of somebody looking on in this situation to describe to us what has taken place. And neither are these words the result of careful investigation and careful research that then present to us the summary findings of all of this research and investigation. No, these words contain the story of an event that was witnessed by nobody other than Jesus, which means nobody other than Jesus could tell this story or recall this story. Nobody else could describe what took place. Nobody else could give insight or revelation as to what happened. This story belongs to Jesus alone because he was in the wilderness alone. And that means that we know about this because he chose to share his story. This is a testimony of Jesus. That's what testimony is, isn't it? We, we share our testimony where we recount that which we've been through and what God has done within it, and we share that as our testimony. Jesus recounts what he has been through and what happened within that moment. This is a testimony of Jesus. So for us to know about this, for us to read this on the pages of Scripture must mean that he's told his disciples about this. He's shared 
with his friends. He shared with his disciples this intimate and painful experience that he's gone through. He shared about the battle of the soul, of the conflicting and difficult experience that he faced. These verses come out of a place of vulnerability. And understanding that what we read, which we've read a thousand times over, often just flippantly skimming over them, understanding that actually we have this story because Jesus opened up and shared the battle of his own soul with his friends. Understanding that these words that we're reading and handling today come from a place of extreme vulnerability and openness. Well, it makes what we're reading quite special, doesn't it? It makes it worthy of our attention and of our respect. And the second reason that these verses are so special and unique is because they act as a bridge. They link the writings of the first three chapters to the rest of the gospel. And yes, we understand that chapter three is bridged almost into chapter five by chapter four, which is why it's there and labeled number four, because that's the natural, logical thing. But when we understand it within the overall context, it completely transforms our understanding. See, in the order of the writing of Luke's gospel, Jesus has emerged from the shadows into the spotlight to begin his ministry in Luke chapter three. And up until now in the account of Jesus within Luke's gospel, Jesus has not preached, he has not revealed any insight, he has not brought any revelation whatsoever, he has performed no miracles. In fact, with the exception of the moment when the boy Jesus is in the temple saying, why are you concerned about where I was, here's where I was going to be. With the exception of the boy Jesus moment in the temple, Jesus has not said anything within the writings of Luke yet. In fact, Jesus has just emerged out of the River Jordan with the descent of the Spirit and the announce of the Father, you are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now this wilderness moment is a moment of shift. It's a moment of transition. It's a moment in which the introduction of Jesus is linked to the ministry of Jesus, but it's also the moment, as we said, when the overall story of the scripture is linked to the story of the Savior. All of this comes together and lands as one on our page in Luke chapter four in the wilderness. All of this comes together, lands as one, and journeys as one from this point forward. This is a massive moment. This is a transition moment, a threshold moment. This is when things change gear. This is when there comes a shift, a seismic shift in the story of Israel and the story of the world. And the seismic shift comes not with fanfare or trumpet blasts, not with a crowd or the cheer or applause of an audience. This hugely significant transition comes not on a platform or a stage or with spotlights. It happens in the wilderness. It happens in obscurity. It takes place when no one is watching. In fact, we wouldn't even have known that it had taken place if Jesus had not shared it with his friends. This moment of utmost significance and utmost significance, this moment that saw a seismic shift in the story of the entire world, this moment that saw a complete power change, a change in power play, it took place in obscurity. It happened away from the crowd and away from the masses, out of the public eye. It took place in the wilderness. You know, sometimes the most significant shifts in our life take place when nobody's watching. Sometimes that which changes the gear, 
Sometimes that which alters the power play in our life takes place in the most obscure seasons of life. Often it's the private struggles and the personal battles that nobody else sees about and nobody else knows about. Often it's those personal private battles and struggles that shape us the most. God often uses the wilderness experiences of life to be threshold moments that transition us into something new, something completely different that changed the whole narrative of our journey. The problem is that we become accustomed to superstar Christianity. The problem is that the the form of Christianity that seems to be taking resonance and flooding social media and YouTube and, and, and being quoted and cited by folk at this moment is this superstar, super spiritual Christianity where we wear our struggles like our stripes on our sleeves. We went into the spiritual realm and I've had to do this in the spiritual realm and I've had to deal this in the spiritual realm and I've had to fight with this and I've battled this and I've bound this and I've loosed this and I've named this and I've claimed this and I've blabbed this and I've grabbed that and, 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 and I've brought this down and I've raised this up and I've loosed this and I've said that's not going to happen and I've decreed that this is going to happen and the problem with all of that is that there's only one person in the spotlight and it's not Jesus Christ but we've come to love this sensational hyper spiritual Christianity it's all about here's what I'm doing and here's what I've done but yet do you know what sometimes the most obscure shifts and transitions in our lives take place in obscure moments, the most significant shifts, the most significant changes take place when nobody sees. You know, Jesus didn't think to himself, right, okay, I'm going to go to the Sermon on the Mount. I've got a really good crowd here, good number. Now's the time that I'll tell them all about my battle with the devil. He didn't say, right, done a quick head count. They say there's 5,000 guys here and their women's here as well. Or the women are here as well, sorry, and the, the children are here as well. So this is a massive crowd. So before I do my loaves and fishes trick, I'm going to tell them the story that makes me a proper spiritual superstar. He doesn't do that. Sometimes the most significant shifts take place in obscure moments. We've got to learn not to despise the obscure seasons because they bring the most noticeable change. We've got to learn not to resent the wilderness moments with their constant struggles and their private battles because more often than not, these are the most formative seasons and the most transformative experiences. And one of the things that we've got to remember is it doesn't need to be seen to be significant. And it doesn't need to be proclaimed to be purposeful. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't share our stories and share our testimony because the scripture calls us to do that. We have to share our testimony of what God has done to bring him glory and to build one another up because it could just be that as we share our story that that story of breakthrough brings encouragement and fuel for someone else to believe God to break through in that area in their life too. But we've just got to make sure that when we share those stories, Jesus is always in the spotlight and not us. That he's center stage. It's all about what he has done. And we need to realize that it's not always about where is the spotlight, let me stand within it. It's not always about what is the story, let's add some layers of sensational spiritual jargon to it. It doesn't need to be seen to be significant because the only one that sees it, that needs to see it, is God. It doesn't need to be proclaimed to be purposeful. God sees, God knows. It's his work. It's his activity. The most significant change comes out of 
Sometimes the most difficult seasons, God brings that out of that which is of utmost significance out of the unseen seasons. And normally that's because in those moments, he's dealing with character and he's dealing with the soul. And that's far more important than the flashbang wallop of all the other stuff. Jesus' journey in the wilderness brought about a massive significant shift. What is this shift and why is it so massively significant? Well, we arrive on a passage that talks about temptation and talks about the devil and we often skip right past it because it's quite heavy. I know you're too kind and gracious to admit it, but when we went, we're going to turn to Luke chapter four and we saw it was the temptation in the wilderness. I bet most of us were like, oh no. Because it's heavy. And it's talking about temptation and how Jesus doesn't give in to it and it just reminds us of all those times that we did. And it's hard and we, we like to skim past that stuff to get to the spirit of the Lord is on me stuff or the driving out the demons or the healings and the miracles because that's good fun stuff. But actually what is happening here is significant and we cannot overlook it. They record a shift of seismic proportions that completely alter the story of our world. And to see that, we have to understand how these verses bridge what has been before with everything else that is about to come. Jesus has just been baptized. And as he emerges out of the water, the heavens have opened, the spirit has descended, the voice of the father announces his pleasure in creation. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. It's like God's from Essex in that moment. Well pleased, bruv. With you, I, that was terrible. <laughs> so sorry. Can we remove that from the video? The father announces his pleasure. He's pleased. And it says he leaves the Jordan and he enters the wilderness where the devil saddles up to tempt him. And we see when we read the conversation between the devil and Jesus that the devil's modus operandi has not changed since the beginning of time because he comes up to Jesus and he says, if you're the son of God, tell the stone to turn to bread. If you're the son of God, throw yourself off of this height and the angels will rescue you. Now the voice of the father has just announced, just verses previous, you are my son. And then the devil comes along and says, if you are the son of God. The devil seeks to attack the identity of Jesus. Because this is what he does. He attacks our identity. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the slanderer of the saints. He seeks to try and challenge our identity. But here is the thing. He can't. We are sons and daughters of the living God. And nothing and nobody can change that. Nothing and nobody can erase that. We're held in the palm of his hand and nothing and nobody can take us away from that place. Nothing can interrupt his unconditional love for our lives. Nobody can change who we are because of whose we are. But the devil seeks to challenge his identity, but we take that a step further. Because actually, the voice of the father says, you are my son. The devil comes and says, if you are the son, actually what he's doing is he's challenging the voice of God. He's challenging what God has said. He seeks to cast doubt on the word of God. Therefore, he seeks to cast doubt on the voice of God. And this has been his modus operandi from the beginning when he saddled up to Eve and said, did God really say that? He sought to cast doubt. 
He sought to challenge the voice of God and challenge the word of God. That's not really what he meant when he said that. He didn't really mean that you would die. He's challenging what God has said. And this is interesting when we bring this into this temptation story as part of the overall narrative of Luke. You see, we dip in and out of scripture. We turn to this passage and we turn to that passage and we read this bit and we read that bit and we preach from this bit and we preach from that bit and that's fine because God uses that and as long as we're in the word, that's what's important. But what we've also got to remember is that Luke wrote this narrative as one overall story. He intended it to be read as one continuous story that would present to us who Jesus is. And when we begin to read it the way that he intended it, it brings out so much more significance. At the end of chapter three, we read about the Jordan River moment. And it says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. As he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you're my son whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matha, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi. And so it goes on and on and on and on until we come to verse 38 that says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, God has just announced Jesus' identity as the son of God. And Luke tells us that everybody thinks he's the son of Joseph, So they're not sure of his identity. And so it's almost as though what Luke seeks to do here is to present his genealogy, to present his family tree to show exactly whose son he is. And he goes all the way back to Adam and then when we arrive at Adam, there's an interesting phrase. Adam is described as the son of God. This is when it gets interesting. Adam the first son of God. Now we call him son of God not because he's divine. We're not suggesting that there's any divinity or that he's Jesus. It's because God has created him. His life has come from God. God has given him life. Therefore, God is his father. He is his son. And he's the first son, not in terms of um, prominence or sovereignty, just in terms of order. So let's not read anything into what we're saying about Adam. But according to Genesis, Adam is created within the environment where the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. He is created as the image of God. And upon his creation, God announces his pleasure and announces that that which has just been made isn't just good, but it's very good. The voice of God thunders within creation and announces his pleasure over his son. To this son of God, The devil then saddles up and challenges the voice of God and the word of God. He seeks to attack the voice of God. He seeks to cast doubt over the word of God. And Adam yields to temptation. Now let's be clear, Genesis 3 tells us that the conversation takes place between the serpent and Eve. However, the golden phrase is that Eve took the fruit and ate it, then she gave some to the man who was with her. So let's be clear, Adam was there all along. And at any point, Adam could have intervened. He was created as the ruler over the created realm as a reflection of God who was the ruler over the cosmos. Rule over every created and living being, God says. I give you every tree, every plant, it's yours. 
So at any point, Adam could have said, serpent, get out of here, close your mouth, don't speak anymore. Eve, put that fruit down, walk away, do not listen. But he didn't use his authority, so he lost his authority. If you don't use it, you lose it. Adam yields to the temptation of the devil. He gives in and succumbs to the voice of the devil. And at that point, the entire world plummeted under the conditions of sin. Adam, the first son of God, yields to the devil's voice and this impacts everything that takes place in the world from that moment onwards. For generations, humanity has been living under the conditions of what took place, the impact of what took place that moment. So in that moment, there comes a shift, a change in gear, a change in the power plate. Genesis 3 marks a moment that brought a seismic shift. To bring all of that into Luke's gospel and we have Jesus walking onto the pages of scripture who is described as the firstborn, labeled in scripture as the second Adam. The second Adam steps into the river Jordan and as he does, the heavens are opened and the spirit descends and the spirit begins to hover over the one standing in the water. So you could say the spirit is hovering over the waters. And as the Spirit is hovering over the waters, the voice of the Father booms within creation, announcing his pleasure over his Son. This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He declares him to be the Son of God. And to this Son of God, to the Son of God, the image of the invisible God standing in the water with the Spirit hovering over and the voice of God booming pleasure over him. As he emerges from that place and heads into the wilderness, the devil comes to tempt him, to challenge the voice of God, to attack the word of God. But unlike the first Adam, the second Adam does not succumb. He does not yield. He does not give in. He does not bend to the voice of the devil, but affirms the voice of God by declaring the word of God in response. And in this moment, there comes a shift. We've got to see this. In Genesis, we've got this moment in which the spirit of God is hovering. The voice of God is announcing pleasure. The devil comes to tempt. Adam succumbs and the whole creation plummets under the condition of sin. But here in this moment, The second Adam stands in the water with the spirit of the presence of God and the voice of pleasure. He comes into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil and he doesn't succumb and he rescues the world from the power of sin. There's a seismic shift happening here. There's a change in gear. There's a change in the power play. Everything that would happen from this point on is impacted by what is taking place right here in Luke chapter 4. The first Adam succumbs, the world falls under the power of sin. The second Adam resists, the world is rescued from the power of sin. This wilderness moment, this obscure battle, this unseen exchange brought about such a dynamic shift and radical transformation. It changed the gear and altered the power play. The second Adam could not be tempted by the power of sin. He came to destroy it. How amazing is he? And Jesus, full of the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. The phrase was led by the Spirit in the original Greek can be translated as in the wilderness the Spirit was leading him. 
And while it sounds like semantics, it actually opens up a whole new interpretation and understanding of the passage. Jesus wandering in the wilderness for 40 days led by the presence of the Spirit. The imagery that's presented there is not lost on us. It immediately makes us think of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years led by the presence of God who was pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. It's not lost. The Israelites wandered, led by God's presence for a period of 40. Jesus wanders in the wilderness, led by God's presence for a period of 40. And what is interesting in all of this is that in Exodus, just as they're about to enter into the wilderness, it says this about Israel. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. Israel is referred to as God's son. And God's son, wandering around the wilderness, faces some very significant tests, faces some very significant challenges, three main complaints. They complain that there's no bread to eat. So God rains bread from heaven and gives them manna. They complain that Moses has been up the mountain in the cloud of glory for too long. And they don't know if he's ever going to come back or if God's ever going to do anything for them or lead them or be their God or whatever. So they build their own God. They make their own calf. They complain repeatedly over and over and over. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us up out into the wilderness for us to die? They complain and question and challenge the provision, the presence, and the protection of God. We bring that into Luke. And the devil saddles up alongside Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus responds to the challenge on the word of God with the word of God. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3 and says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He affirms that he will not question or challenge the provision of God in any way. The devil comes to him again and says, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus answers, quoting Deuteronomy 6, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He affirms that he will not question or challenge the presence and reality of God or his position as sovereign in his life. The devil tries one more time and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off the temple and God will get his angels to rescue you. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, do not put the Lord your God to test. He says, I will not question, I will not challenge the protection of God or put the protection of God to the test. You see, every area that the Israelites failed in, Jesus held his ground and succeeded. And it's interesting that in response to every one of those temptations, Jesus responds by quoting scripture. And out of all the scripture he could have quoted, he quotes scripture specifically from the time of the Israelites' wilderness wanderings. Israel identified as God's son. It's described to us in Isaiah as rebelling against God and grieving his spirit. Jesus, as the son of God, as the rescuer of Israel, is described to us as one who's obedient to God and is empowered by his spirit. Israel, God's son, failed in the wilderness. It was in this son that God sought to establish a covenant. But they couldn't keep that covenant and they broke that covenant. They couldn't obey his laws and his requirements and they grieved his spirit. Jesus comes as the son of God and he did not fail in the wilderness. He obeyed and was empowered by the spirit and in him and through him, God established a better and a new covenant that exists for us. To bring us life, to bring us into his glory. 
These verses are beyond special. They mark a shift, a seismic shift, a threshold, a transition, a change in gear, a very real change in power play. Jesus did not succumb to the work of the evil one. Jesus came to destroy the work of the evil one. And the fall of Eden and the futility of the old covenant, the story of creation, the story of Israel, all find their resolution in the story of Jesus. They all come together as one and land in this moment as God just shifts absolutely everything. And Jesus here, he changes the narrative. He alters the story. He makes all things new. This is a phenomenal moment. This is a significant moment. We cannot overlook this. What took place right here in Luke chapter 4 had implications and impacted everything that would take place upon the face of the earth from that moment on. And you're sitting there and I'm standing here redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, partakers in the new covenant, filled with the Spirit of God, living as sons and daughters of God, conquerors in every situation, delivered from the dominion of darkness and translated into the kingdom of light because the Son of God did not yield to the voice of the devil, but was obedient to God and was filled and moved and empowered by his spirit. What a wonderful savior. Jesus responds to these temptations, reveals his approach to ministry. The first time we read him doing anything, saying anything, he starts as he means to go on. He reveals his method and his mission. Truly, Luke paints a picture for us of who this Jesus is and what this Jesus does. We see a number of things and we call them out real quick because time is gone and perhaps these can be explored in our connect groups. But what we see here is that Jesus is devoted to the call and the purpose of God. He is faithful to the will of God. He is 100% devoted to God's mission and he does not seek to serve his own purpose or his own agenda or his own gain, or his own ambition, he is unswervingly faithful to the mission of God. And here's what makes that wonderful. We are his mission. He came to seek and save the lost. That means we're the mission. And God is faithful to the mission, or Jesus is faithful to the mission of God, and therefore, as we are the mission, that means that he is faithful to us, and it doesn't mean that Jesus just does what we want and when we want him to do it, but it means he who began the good work in us is faithful to complete it. He is trustworthy because he does not sway or swerve from the mission of God in our lives. So we can trust him. We can rely on him. We can lean our everything into him and trust him with our today and our tomorrow because he is faithful. His response of quoting the word of God every single time reveals his determination to draw focus to God and not to himself. He doesn't try and deal with it in his own strength and his own merit. He could have, but no, he responds by quoting the word of God because he is constantly spotlighting the Father. In his ministry, through his ministry, he constantly spotlights him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
I'm not the end destiny, I'm the way to the Father. I am the gate, I am the door. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. He constantly spotlights the Father and he continues to do so in our lives. He redeems us, he works his grace within us. And he brings us to the place where we see how great the love the Father has lavished upon us, that we are children of the living God. We are filled by the Spirit through Jesus Christ who testifies with our spirits that we are children of the living God. He is constantly spotlighting the Father within us and bringing us into an experience of the incredible Father heart of God. Jesus responds to the devil's shows that his modus operandi is to reject glory, is to reject power is to reject honor. Instead, he's going to embrace difficulty and discomfort. He is not uncomfortable being in uncomfortable situations. He's not put off by the difficult situations. He's the friend of suffering and discomfort. He's the friend of lowliness and humility. He's not going to identify with glitz and glamour, status and wealth, which means it doesn't matter where we are and it doesn't matter what's going on. We know our friend Jesus is there. His rejection of the suggestion of turning stone to bread to prove his identity reveals his true method and mission. He's not come to transform surroundings. He's come to transform souls. He's come to transform the soul and the way that the soul exists within the circumstances of life. And we see that furthermore by the fact that he's walking around the wilderness. The wilderness is often referred to in the Gospels as the haven for the demonic. If you look at the times that we see someone gripped by a demon, you normally find them in the dry and arid places. In fact, we're told that the demon's cast out and it goes through dry and arid places. But also in Jesus, we did him constantly going into the wilderness, into the solitude to commune with God. You see, Jesus' method, his mission, his modus operandi was to turn the wilderness of the soul into an oasis of God. Was to turn the dry and barren places into a meeting point with him. And as we see him in this wilderness, we see two forces at work. The force of the devil and the force of the spirit. Jesus is filled with the spirit. He is led by the spirit. The spirit is this internal compass within him. But we're told the devil comes to him to tempt him, to forces that are at work, the spirit within and the devil without. And Jesus led and guided and empowered by the spirit stands his ground and rejects the devil, which proves to us he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. This is an amazing moment where Jesus standing ground brings shift and change for all of history and everything that takes place in the life and the ministry of Jesus after this begins right here in Luke chapter four when the son of God the image of the invisible God over whom the Father announced his pleasure and the Spirit lighted came into the wilderness as the second Adam and said, not today, Satan, not today. And as a result, we exist in freedom and victory. Hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. Could we worship him? Could we? Could we?